We never rolled initiative, at no time was there any combat, and yet the entire session was filled with tension, with mystery, and an almost oppressive sense of danger. More happened in session three than in both prior sessions combined. And I think there's a lot of good lessons to be learned in that. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. Nimelda Blackbriar is an inquisitor with the Ravenesque garrison. A halfling woman, her guards are about to arrest the party, and she intervenes to defuse the situation. Her job is to root out insurrection, to find spies. More specifically, she's looking for members of the cult of the faithful of Semyana. They're the enemy. They're the ones that eventually are looking to overtake Outpost 9. And it's her job to root them out and destroy them. But secondarily, she's an official Ravenest citizen, and it's her job to make sure that the power of Ravenest is maintained. And having a very high-profile wizard accused of the murder of three citizens in Outpost 9 puts her in an awkward position. When she sees her guards about to capture the PCs, she intervenes to take the whole situation down a few notches. She insists that the innkeeper clear the inn of anybody in the main room, so that just leaves her, her men, and the five PCs. She sets about questioning them, but she stops them when they're heading off on dangerous tangents. Eventually, she gets to call to himself, and tries to ascertain, is this someone that I'll be able to work with? Can he help me? But based on the way that Calda acts, she decides that he seems a bit too naive, a bit out of his depth, not someone who's cunning enough to actually handle the situation. But she needs to impress upon him a couple of things, because what she wants him to do is take his master, Riziki, out of the prison, put him on a ship, and go with him back to Ravenest. This way she can just deal with the situation on her own. When she leads him up to the room, she warns him before she takes him inside. She tells him, you've never seen anything like this before. It's rather grisly. When he goes inside, he finds that the room is veritably plastered in the blood and gore of three bodies. There are scorch marks on the walls. Absolutely nothing is left. And she impresses upon him the need to leave Outpost 9 to take Riziki and go, because she also shows him that among the dead, specifically among one of the body parts, there is a tattoo marking them as one of the faithful of Semyana, and this raises a horde of questions for her and complications, I think, for some of the PCs. Why were the faithful in the room with Riziki, and who would have done this to them? Because it certainly doesn't seem like the old mage who's practically lost his mind would be capable of something like this. This is the first of the story beats present in our last session. Overall, the entire night was organized around three general factions, and they were interwoven without, but in recapping what happened, I think it's actually a lot more clarifying to talk about them specifically faction by faction. The first faction is the Ravenest government represented here by the NPC inquisitor Blackbriar. She's a tough character, but I think fair 
and that was a bit unexpected for the players, especially when she holds the title of Inquisitor. She does seem to help them, but she asks hard questions, meaning she prevents them from being arrested by the guards, but she's pressing them. She's asking them questions that they don't really want to answer, like, who do you work for? What were you guys doing last night? But as they begin to answer, and if any of them start to say things that are quite honestly a bit too honest, she holds up a hand to stop them. Because truthfully, she doesn't care or want to know what they were doing. She wants all of this swept under the rug. As far as she's concerned, something was going on with the faithful of Semyana, and they got the bad end of the stick on this one. So she's more inclined to try to find a way to protect Riziki. Except, he's kind of out of his mind. So after the whole sequence in the inn where she interrogates them and she has certain questions, she sets up the next steps in saying to Calda, come and get your things and collect the wizard Riziki, put him on a boat, take him home. Later in the evening's play, Calda did just that, bringing the sorcerer Voss along with him. They go to what's called the Crow Towers within Outpost 9, which is where the garrison is held. They go into one of the towers, and they go down deep into one of the dungeons, where they meet again with Inquisitor Blackbriar. She tells them to be careful. In a scene, I'll be honest, they stole right out of Silence of the Lambs. As they're walking through the prison, there are certain prisoners who are shouting at them. And there's kind of a... Uh, a little bit of a nod towards one of the, the key elements of the campaign with a crazy person screaming about how they should beware the sleeping god. Eventually they get to Riziki's room and he's much worse than they remember. He's talking to himself, he's pacing the room, he's writing in the air with his finger, and there's not a lot that he's saying that makes a ton of sense. Calda doesn't really want to take Riziki because at this point he realizes he can't leave the man alone, he would have to take him straight to a ship. So Blackbriar agrees to hold him until the ship is ready. She sort of expresses her dissatisfaction with Kolda's capabilities, and he gets huffy and insists that he'll be able to take care of this because his family is into shipping and he should be able to book passage no problem. The turning point here is when he finds out that all the gold that they had stored is now missing and Blackbriar makes it sound as if the innkeeper's wife is the likely culprit, which sets up certain motivation for Calda moving forward. The next faction that dominated the session were the faithful of Semyana. The Sorcerer of Oz used to be one of their number, and has only recently left their order, and not under the best of circumstances. Back in the beginning, when everyone was at the Golden Hen being interrogated by Blackbriar, the dwarf Constantine was able to sneak out before any of that went down, so he's not part of that. And outside, he notices that there's three strange individuals watching the inn from afar, and one in particular, a very pale, strange man. He walks up and engages with them, trying to see if they know what's going on, and has kind of a strange, I'd say, chilling encounter with this sociopath, who seems to ask a lot of questions of Constantine about what he saw inside the inn, but Constantine plays it off like he wasn't ever there. He does continue to watch, however, and later, when the PCs are able to get out of the inn, away from the Inquisitor, Voss has a split second where she spots this strange individual. 
His name is Luskin, and he is known as a master assassin who works for the faithful of Semyana. She's dealt with him before, and she's concerned because what if he's here for her? She knows that he is extremely dangerous, and the concern is that once he's on a target, he doesn't stop until the target's dead. Voss makes a really good decision here, though, I think. I kind of gave her the quick backstory on, on what's happening with Luskin, and she takes a risk that maybe things have happened really quickly, and he doesn't quite know yet what's happening. So as she's walking out, rather than engage with him, and rather than run away, she subtly puts one finger up to her lips, knowing that he's watching her. And <clears throat> it works. This master assassin keeps his distance. The faithful of Semyana are not supposed to be in Outpost 9. They don't have a foothold there. They're attempting to infiltrate and do certain things. As part of Voss's backstory, she was there to destroy a temple of Pelor. And that's when she became turned, and now she has this sort of war inside her between Semyana, who's a fallen angel of the old god, looking to ascend into godhood of his own, and this angel of Pelor, a god of light. And they're in direct opposition. Now, as she's trying to navigate her way, she sees herself caught between the factions of the faithful of Semyana, who are extremely dangerous and have ulterior motives, and they have missions to accomplish within Outpost 9. And there is this strange assassin character now who is clearly isn't quite set up to come after her yet, but if he knew the truth of what's happened, he almost definitely would. When... Calda dragged Voss to the Crow Tower to meet with Riziki, and she saw that he was a little out of his mind. She suspects maybe he's not as out of his mind as he seems, and uses the spell message to ask him if he knows what the faithful of Semyana were doing in that room. And he, aloud in one of his crazy rants, talks about how the faithful are there looking for their lost emissary the one with true power, and they won't stop until they find her. Which she takes, I think, to mean they were there looking for her, and if that's her supposition, she's right. The next faction is the Thieves' Guild, and this is mostly Constantine's bag, but before that happens, Bren, the half-orc fighter, goes back to his mercenary company and finds that they're shocked to see he's alive, because you see, Castigari, the captain that betrayed them on the island of Skagros has already been here, has already seen Mig's Ten Fingers, the Thieves' Guild emissary that sent them there in the first place, and told them that everyone was killed. And so they're shocked to see that Bren is alive, and he has to explain that actually most of the, in fact, all of the other members of the mercenary company were killed on the island, but he and a few others were able to escape. So he collects his pay, and... He goes and he warns Constantine that Castigari's already been in the mix. And this information arms Constantine because he's a little nervous about what Miggs is going to say. Because while they were able to get the iron box, they weren't able to kill Captain Nupo. The meeting with Miggs is very tense. Miggs is also a little bit surprised to see that uh, Constantine and anyone is alive. He's pleased that they were able to retrieve the box, but disappointed that Nupo is still alive. Still, he offers up an interesting opportunity because he has information about the whereabouts of Castigari, specifically that 
He's been using a mansion outside the outpost proper as a staging ground to smuggle items in and out of Outpost 9 without having to pay the tariffs. And so it could mean that there's a chance to go there, attack, and kill their betrayer. The other thing that Constantine and Miggs talk about is the iron box. He still hasn't opened it. Miggs tells him that what's inside is certainly worth more than the alternative hundred gold he'd get if he hands the box over to Miggs. But what's inside is somewhat dangerous. I think the curiosity was more than Constantine could bear, and so he decided to take the box. But he doesn't get around to opening it. He does have Calda use detect magic on it, but Calda can't detect anything. I wasn't planning on doing that. I was planning on having Calda be able to detect magic, but I realized the magic item in the box, its whole point is to prevent scrying and divination, so it makes perfect sense that it would not actually be triggered by the detect magic spell, or I should say that the detect magic spell would be incapable of reading what's inside the box, or that there's magic at all. Before everything kind of shakes out, Calda and Voss or I should say Calda, with Voss in tow, goes back to the Golden Hen in an attempt to get the 500 gold pieces back. He has kind of a, a half-baked plan to disguise himself as someone, go in there and pretend he's a prior resident and that he misplaced the pouch of gold. Um, the innkeeper's wife obviously just runs him off. He kind of notes afterwards that, yes... I would, we would kill for that much gold, and of course, so would the innkeeper's wife. So his attempt to simply shame her into giving the gold back fails, and now we have some interesting motivation for what I anticipate will be a future endeavor after they come back from the next adventure. So how did the session end? The group basically decided that, yes, they were going to go after Castigari, that they would like a little payback because he stranded them there on that island and almost had them killed. So in the dead of night, they travel outside the outpost, travel through the Goblinwood and towards this mansion that sits outside the bluffs along the sea. It's believed that there's a cave system under the mansion, and within it is the ability to go down towards the water where Castigari's ship, the Gregopos, will likely be found. And that's where we ended it, and that'll be the beginning of the next session. What worked? What didn't work? What worked well was the three core NPCs that were tied into each of the factions I just described. Those NPCs were the linchpin behind maintaining a sense of dread and tension and drama across all the needs and desires and things that the players were facing. In the beginning, we have Inquisitor Blackbriar. She represents both a salvation and a threat, and it was this change-up that really helped to keep the party a little bit on their toes and trying to figure out, is she friend? Is she foe? Will she help us? Will she not help us? How can we navigate with her to a successful conclusion? In the case of the faithful of Semyana, there is this assassin, Luskin. He appears first to Constantine as this very strange character watching the inn, disturbing person. He appears again much later on when Voss spots him in the Salty Crow Inn where they're hiding, and 
She doesn't realize it's him. She just think it's, thinks it's an operative of the faithful of Simyana. And because she's in this weird zone where she doesn't know who knows she's left and who hasn't, she's playing a strange game. And so she goes to make contact only to discover that it is Luskin in disguise. She's able to ascertain that he's not after her, but he doesn't know what's going on because the person who was supposed to give him instructions is one of the people that died in that room. And so now he represents this ticking time bomb where she's got to decide, am I going to attempt to manipulate him? Am I going to attempt to give him counter orders to kind of throw him off the trail? Eventually, someone from the faithful will show up, let him know what has really happened, and then she'll have quite a deadly enemy on her hands. The third character is, of course, Miggs. He's not new to the party. He's been around uh, since the very beginning, but it's unclear how he'll respond to the half-success, half-failure of the Skagros mission, what he'll actually do to or for Constantine, and what his play really is. There was this thing that Castigari said when he betrayed them. He said, if you, if you knew what he was up to, you'd be on my side. Was he lying? Was he telling the truth? Regardless, Castigari abandoned them on that island, and so now the party's out for revenge. But I think these three NPCs were the some of the primary reasons why a session without any combat was able to really feel tense and dramatic, and it's because of the interactions with them, the power that they do wield, and the party's agency in being able to deal with them and maybe try to gain the upper hand. What didn't work so well, and what I think is an Achilles heel of the entire role-playing system, is something that I struggle with, and I'm completely incapable of figuring out what the proper solution is. And that's downtime. Unlike combat encounters where everyone gets a turn, in social encounters, there's going to be certain folks that are dominant and certain folks that aren't, and that may shift from you know, social encounter to social encounter. But what that means is there's entire scenes where characters are normally regulated to uh, supporting or background status. You may be sitting there saying, well, if you run it right, everyone gets to be part of a conversation, except that's not how these things work. If you've got an NPC or an NPC faction there's only going to be so many of your player characters that really are dealing with them. So in the case of the Inquisitor, it was primarily Calda who was talking to the Inquisitor. I mixed it up a little bit with the guards also throwing in some questions, plus the Inquisitor specifically had to interrogate everyone, so everyone had a little bit of a turn, but primarily the interaction with the Inquisitor was with Calda. In the case of Miggs, the primary interaction, the only interaction, is with Constantine. And in the case of Luskin, while there was a little bit of an interaction with Constantine in the beginning, primarily this was all about Voss. Two of the players were really left without a ton to do during the bulk of the session. There were moments that they had, there certainly were engagements, but I would be kidding myself if I said that it was the most robust experience for them the entire night. So the way I've done this throughout my gaming career is I try to make sure that I don't I won't do that again, meaning 
the next session actually probably won't have a lot of these social interactions but when i do get to this the next time when there are social interactions i'm going to do my best to make sure that mir and bren get um, a little bit more of the spotlight these are very mature characters and i i should say players and they were really trying to um, you know make the best of it and i think they did have a good time um, but again i i think it it's still a weakness of the games where so much time is can be spent with people sitting around without a heck of a lot to do other than be spectators i think you can see that when you if you watch critical role there's entire episodes where there's really not a lot of combat and there's a lot of social interaction you'll notice not everyone is active all the time i think everyone kind of gets their turn and I think that's probably the best way to go about it, to try to find a way to make sure in a session like that, everyone has their moment. And certainly I did that, but there's always some who have it more than others. And I think it's, it's something you have to be really sensitive to. You certainly can't overdo that. You don't want people sitting around without a lot to do. So what were the lessons learned in the last session? I think NPCs Acting slightly against type is a, uh, an important tool in the toolbox of any dungeon master, especially when you're looking to create an NPC that needs to hold up a lot of the session. A lot of times you can just have an NPC that kind of pops on the screen, they have an engagement, they probably end up killing that NPC in some kind of a combat, and all they really needed to do was be mildly entertaining so that they stand out just a little bit so it's not like you know orc chief number three there's it, it there's some personality that's put forth but in this case for these kind of sessions i needed to know what the motivation was for all of these primary npcs and provide flaws in their approach as well as a big heaping spoon of potency meaning any one of these three npcs the inquisitor the assassin and the thief captain any one of them could have decimated the players in the party so they represent that threat but there's flaws to each of them or i should say things that they do that are suboptimal and a little off the inquisitor is trying to balance uh, motivations she's not just there to arrest them she's just she's not a cop she has political motivations that are really preventing her from just becoming an, an absolute one note. There's multiple things going on as she's trying to navigate with the players. The players are trying to navigate her. She's trying to figure out how to best deal with these characters. The master assassin doesn't know what's going on. He's confused. He's trying to figure it out just like the players are. And the thief captain, well, at this point, he's playing a much deeper game and is involved, I think, in things that will really play out uh, over the, the at least these beginning levels of, of the campaign. But he has information that the characters don't have. He's not telling them everything. But at the same time, he doesn't know everything that's going on. And he doesn't want what's inside that box because of what it represents in the long term. And having those kind of facets to these NPCs is crucially necessary in order to have a session like this where there really is no combat. And the last thing I'd want to say is that providing the players a fairly detailed schematic of the town 
was absolutely crucial. It prevented us from me having to explain a ton of things geographically with words. I think it, it short-circuited any potential confusion as we were talking about people going here and there and what the different areas of the town were. It was all laid out right for them and they could see it and it really helped to facilitate this type of a session where they're moving through this broader location and doing different things. Overall, the last session is probably the most fun I've had at the gaming table in years. I think, again, from the very beginning, I went out of my way to select players that I think are really good at this stuff, and I was entertained by a lot of the stuff they were coming up with, the personality they were putting into it. Everyone had a ton of buy-in. And maybe more than anything else I've said in this entire session, that's what's critically necessary to have a great session. The players have to really be bought in to the overall scenario and be willing to do the things that, uh, and, be, and be willing to put themselves out there and lean into the story that you're, or the story options that you're putting in front of them. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing, throwing us a review, or sharing with your other gamer friends. Thanks for listening. <laughs>